As our kids are making their way out, I want to say welcome once again to Trinity Grace. We're so glad that you're here, especially if you're a guest with us this morning. We're glad that you're here, whether you're convinced of the claims of Christ or whether you're here trying to explore the claims of Christ. We are so glad that you're here. Welcome. If you've got a Bible, you'll want to turn it to 1 Peter chapter 4. The passage is also printed for you in your worship folder. And as many of you will know, we're in the middle of a series on 1 Peter. And this was a letter that was written by the Apostle Peter, who was one of Jesus' closest friends and followers. And it's a a five-chapter letter or a five-chapter book. And we're going to be wrapping up this letter in the next few weeks so that we can turn our attention to the season of Advent when December begins, a season where we anticipate the first coming of Jesus into this world. And as we near the end of this letter that Peter wrote, you kind of get the sense that he's in the mode of saying last things. It's like when a parent is maybe dropping their child off at school and they're getting closer to saying bye, but there's still lots of things that they want to communicate. And it kind of gets rapid fire, just trying to get it all out before your kid gets out of the car. And that's kind of the sense that we get in these final two chapters from 1 Peter. And as Peter is coming in for a landing... In our passage this morning, he touches on something that all followers of Jesus are going to encounter in this life. In fact, if you don't encounter what Peter touches upon in this passage, it really forces you to step back and to take inventory of how well you're following him. In fact, you could say that what Peter speaks of in this passage is the thing that distinguishes between those who are real followers of Jesus and those who merely call themselves Christians because of the cultural benefits that they experience with that title. The difference between those two options is found in our passage this morning. To see what I mean, you follow along as I read from 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And it is the righteous, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is God's word and he gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. This past week, was one of the most magical days of the year for kids across our country. The day when all of their neighbors and friends are giving away candy. And when you're really young and you hear about Halloween for the first time, it almost seems too good to be true. You definitely want to be a part of it. And I wonder how much candy your kids brought in this week. Our kids have buckets full. I wonder how much candy you gave away this week at your house if you do that. My kids were so excited that they had plans of hitting every house in the neighborhood and also every house on either neighborhood on either side of us. And they were looking forward to Halloween all month long, literally counting down the days on the calendar. 
mean, candy's always exciting to a little kid. In fact, I still remember a little four-year-old Caleb, our oldest son, coming into our room early one morning after Halloween, and Rachel and I are still in bed, and I asked Caleb if he wanted to get in bed and snuggle with his mommy, to which he replied, I'd rather snuggle with my candy. (laughs) Kids and their candy, it's a pretty tight bond. You don't want to get between that bond. Some of you have likely run across the funny skit that Jimmy Kimmel has been doing for the past eight years. It's a skit where he's got parents and they videotape their children the morning after Halloween and these children walk into the kitchen or the living room and the parents tell their kids that they ate all their candy, all their Halloween candy. It's a skit entitled, Hey Jimmy Kimmel, I told my kids I ate their Halloween candy. And they send in these videos and these video clips start with parents informing their kids what happened. They say something like, Hey, mommy and daddy got really hungry last night and ate all of your candy. It's all gone. And the responses that these kids give on videotape are really hilarious. There's lots of screaming and crying and nasty faces. And some kids even take a chance to speak, saying things like, I'm so disappointed in you. (laughs) One kid said, spit it out of your tummy. Another kid replied, you're selfish. One girl ran up to her room, slammed the door and screamed, no one's coming in unless they have all my candy. One dad asked, after informing his son that he ate all his candy, he asked, do you still love me? To which the little boy, probably three three years old, replied, well, not anymore because you ate all my candy. Some cried uncontrollably, some flopped onto the ground and started screaming, and almost every one of the kids had the attitude that basically said, I cannot believe that this is happening to me. I worked so hard for this candy. I don't deserve this. How could this happen? And it's a really funny skit. You should YouTube it later today if you've got time. But I think it's a pretty good picture of how you and I often respond to suffering and difficulties and unexpected news in our lives. We might be a little bit more mature about it. We might hide it better than these three, four, and five-year-olds do. But when things don't go the way that you envisioned... When we come up against some of life's hardest moments, maybe a devastating diagnosis or a challenging child that seems to be too far gone or a job loss or a friend that moves away or simply moves on or news of a divorce in your family or a tragic accident that alters life completely. When we experience these things that we are never meant to experience, We come face to face with sin in such a way that it devastates us, that it knocks the senses right out of us. We often get the news that things have gone wrong and we say, I can't believe this is happening to me. I don't deserve this. How could this happen? And in the midst of suffering, we wonder where God has gone. We wonder if he still cares for us. We feel abandoned in our hour of need and suffering is a large part of our life. You know that the question isn't, will I suffer, but when will I suffer? It's a matter of when and how hard it will be, not if suffering is coming in this fallen world. For sure, suffering can be held at bay if you've got enough resources, but at the end of the day, it's no respecter of men or money or resources. Suffering is going to happen. Some of you are in the midst of deep suffering now. And you find yourself secretly wondering some of these same questions. And if you're not suffering now, you will, and you'll be faced with the same honest questions. Where is God? 
Does he still care? Why is this happening to me? Well, that's the question that Peter is addressing in our passage this morning. Peter helps us think through suffering here in 1 Peter. And we're going to look at this passage under three headings. And they're alliterated for your listening pleasure. I was feeling creative this week. This morning, we're going to look at the presence of suffering, the purpose of suffering, and the perseverance of suffering. Okay? The presence, the purpose, and the perseverance. And I think you'll see each of these things in our passage this morning. So let's start by looking at the presence of suffering. There are some things in life that happen and you're surprised by them. Some of you, mainly you husbands, are still surprised that you were able to get your spouse to marry you. Some of you are surprised when you find out you're pregnant. Some of you are surprised when you get that promotion. Others are surprised when they're transferred to a new city with their job. Some of you are surprised by how much you enjoy a certain food you were originally scared to try. There's lots of things that can come and surprise us in life, things that we didn't expect. But Peter, in this passage, is trying to persuade his followers, these followers of Jesus and us, that suffering should never be one of those things. In verse 12, Peter explicitly says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Peter's saying suffering should be expected by followers of Jesus. We should expect difficulty in this life as we journey with Christ. But this expectation, you know as well as I, does not make suffering any less difficult. While we should expect it, we should also always remember that suffering is an intruder. It's an intruder into this world. By definition, nobody likes to be persecuted or treated wrong. No one likes to suffer. No one likes to experience heartbreak or disappointment. And it's seen in the way that Christians and non-Christians alike respond to suffering normally with compassion and a certain degree of anger that is righteous. And this is because that every one of us, whether you're Christian or just investigating Christianity this morning, every one of us has a memory and a longing deep inside of our hearts that is louder than we realize. The Bible tells us that before suffering entered the picture as an intruder, we lived in a perfect world where suffering was non-existent. And we were created for a world like that, a world absent of suffering and pain. But as we look around the world today, and as we look at our own hearts, and we see things that are not the way they were originally intended to be, and deep down every person knows that that's the case. See, we're a part of a grand story. One that says that we were each made in God's image. We were created to love and to serve. We were created for freedom and for wholeness. We were created for joy and even happiness. And suffering is an intruder that has entered this grand story that we're a part of. And it would have been a great surprise to these early Christians that Peter's writing to, to discover that even though Jesus had been raised from the dead, that there was still a period of time in which they should expect intense suffering. Even hearing how Peter has described them as Christians in this letter, a holy priesthood, a chosen people, dearly beloved of God, it seems a bit strange that they still have to suffer after being called names like that. Such beautiful names, profound names. 
See, it's because we're all living in this in-between time. It's what theologians have termed the already and the not yet. Jesus has already rescued us and bought us back for our original purposes truly. We can experience what he's doing already right now, but it's not yet fully and completely accomplished. We're in the in-between time where this new world that Jesus has purchased for us overlaps with our fallen world in a sense. And Peter doesn't want us to be surprised as we live in the in-between by suffering. Look, if we're followers of Jesus this morning, we should expect suffering. Remember, Jesus was described as a man well acquainted with suffering and grief in Isaiah. And oftentimes, we want an easier road than the one that we follow. But Peter is gently reminding us in this passage that that is not the way it works when it comes to following Jesus. Like Jesus, Christians should expect to lack provision, to lack power and position and protection, to lack a sense of permanence in this world. We should at times be the recipients of verbal and even physical persecution on account of following Jesus. And that might be more intense as the years roll on in our culture here in America and we become increasingly post-Christian. Christians are meant to experience the pain of the fall. We see bodies wasting away before our eyes. We see relationships that are broken. We see things the way that they're not supposed to be. Christians should expect dark moments when Satan attacks and tempts. And we should know that this is not abnormal. If the world hated Jesus, it's going to hate us as his followers. And in some ways, we need to be reminded of this far more than these original listeners did, because we now live in a culturally Christian society, at least for a little while longer. And we're shocked when we experience persecution. But it's been the way of life for the church throughout history. Suffering is normal. And Peter is saying, if you suffer, make it for the right reason. Make sure it's because you're sharing in Christ's sufferings, he says. In other words, Peter is saying we shouldn't suffer because of our self-righteousness. We shouldn't suffer because we're know-it-alls. We shouldn't suffer because we're holier than thou. We shouldn't suffer because we're jerks. Or even because we've done something against the law, like Peter says in this passage. Our suffering should be because of the way we love people and because of the way we follow Jesus, because of the way we abstain from things that God does not like and promote other things that God does like. When suffering and persecution comes because of those things, Peter calls us to rejoice. Peter is reminding us not to be surprised when suffering comes because it's normal operating procedure for Christians. Not to be unexpected. And as we begin to understand that suffering has a purpose, it's possible to be filled with hope even as we endure suffering. So having seen that suffering is a condition of this fallen world as followers of Jesus, let's turn and look at the purpose of suffering for just a minute. If there were no purpose for suffering, it would be too much to handle. I mean, as you look at the world around you and as you see your own heart, you see tragedy and suffering almost on a daily basis. And if it happened by chance, if the suffering we experience in this world and in our lives happened for no rhyme or reason, it would be enough to drive all of us into deep depression and despair. But Peter, in the rest of the Bible, 
graciously reminds us that suffering is not meaningless. It has a very sacred and important purpose in our lives as followers of Christ. Suffering is meant to refine us. It's meant to purify us. It's meant to mold us more into the image of Jesus. It's what Peter is touching on in verse 13 when he invites us to rejoice as we share in Christ's sufferings. The word Peter uses here is the verbal form of koinonia, which is a word that maybe some of you have heard. In Greek, it means being intimately tied to another person in fellowship. In other words, Jesus is completely with us in our suffering. As we suffer, we are being tied to Jesus in a very profound way. As we suffer, it can be a counterintuitive blessing in our lives. Look, if we don't have this mentality when it comes to suffering, if we're surprised by suffering, if we don't believe that we're blessed by suffering, we will not handle suffering well. If, if we're surprised by suffering, if we've got no category for suffering, then when we do suffer, which everyone in this room will, we'll be prone to turn bitter. When you lose the job or you get the devastating diagnosis or you experience that friend abandoning you, you begin to think, I deserve better than this. I deserve better than this. Which can be appropriate to a certain degree on one hand because it displays a certain degree of self-care, which is good. But on, an, on a certain level, self-pity has the ability to lead us into all kinds of bad decisions. We're suffering and we wonder where God is and we grow bitter and all of a sudden we're not treating our families with the care and the compassion that we once did. Or we're moving deeper into addiction to alcohol or pornography because this is not what we deserve. Or we're wondering if it's even worth it to follow Jesus if this is what we get at the end of the day. And when this happens, it's important to remember that suffering does not come due to some unrighteousness in our lives. Remember, the perfectly righteous man suffered for us, but suffering can come, and even though it's not due to unrighteousness in our lives, it can refine us and grow us in righteousness. Our suffering isn't meant to destroy us, it's meant to purify us. And if we expect suffering and know that it serves a purpose in our lives, what that frees us up to do is properly grieve the sin and the heartbreak while still trusting God and His goodness and in His care. In your suffering, God has not abandoned you. Like I mentioned earlier, this is a regular operating procedure for sons and daughters of God. The purpose of suffering is like a refiner's fire, which takes out all the impurities in a precious metal so that Nothing remains but the pure gold. Gold is often likened to, uh, or God is often likened to a fire throughout the Bible. You might think of some instances just off the top of your head. You see Moses with God as a burning bush. In Leviticus, you see the sacrifices in the Old, uh, Old Testament where fire consumes the entire animal. In the book of Hebrews, which is in the New Testament, although it sounds Old Testament, uh, God is described as a consuming fire. And when God's fire touches our lives through suffering, it can consume, it can destroy, it can judge, or it can come and cleanse and purify. Look, God wants to destroy all sin from his new creation. And he begins that work in us now. 
It begins with the household of God, as Peter says in verse 17. The trials and suffering that we experience now show us that God is already beginning and he is determined to bring about his great work of renewal in this world. And it starts with his church, which is not a building, but a people. One day, God is going to cleanse everything. But that cleansing begins with us. This idea of cleansing means suffering is the thing that will often reveal and expose the places where we put our hope and our trust. Suffering has a way of revealing rival gods in our hearts. When we suffer, we're quietly saying or quietly tempted to say, if I can't have X, then I'm out. If I can't have blank, then I'm out. If I can't have health, or if I can't have comfort, or if I can't have beauty, or if I can't have enough resources, or if I can't have approval, then I'm out. It's when you feel this pressure inside of your heart that you know that you're in the fire being purified. And it's then that God uses suffering to remind us that beauty fades and that money numbs us and that health is fragile and that success is overrated. And God is burning the impurities out of our lives, showing us that he is the only real safe place, inviting us to entrust our souls in him so that we might be purified. So that it might begin with us, this renewal that he wants to do in this world. Look, suffering is not a threat. It's a promise in the Christian life. And I wonder what would happen if we started looking at suffering from that perspective. Instead of God punishing us, what if we adopted the apostles' mentality, remember, in Acts, who felt joy that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus, who knew it was a refining process that was a part of the renewal that God wants to bring? What if we viewed suffering as an opportunity to meet God? Suffering being the place where God wants to show up in our lives most profoundly, a place where we're prepared for glory. If that's true, it means that none of your suffering is wasted. And that is a comforting thought. The cancer, the depression, the ridicule, the death, the loss, it's all doing an eternal work in your heart. And it will not be lost. It is something that will continue into eternity. This renewal process that God is beginning even now in us. So knowing that suffering will be a part of our journey as Christians and knowing that God has a beautiful purpose for our suffering, let's turn and talk just for a minute about how we persevere in suffering. First encouragement Peter gives us to persevere in the midst of suffering is by reminding us that God is in control. In verse 19, Peter encourages these Christians and us to entrust our souls to a faithful creator, he says. And it's interesting that this is the only place in the New Testament where God is referred to by the title creator. I mean, it's implied elsewhere, obviously, but explicitly it's used only here. And Peter is saying that when we trust the Lord in the midst of suffering, we're trusting the architect of all things. And he's accomplishing his great design as creator, even now through what we experience in this world. 
And throughout the Bible, we're reminded that he will watch over us as we commit ourselves to his care. The early Christians to which Peter wrote understood this. There's one account we have of a man named Polycarp. He was an early Christian leader. He was likely a friend of the apostles. He lived in the first and second century. And he was burned at the stake for following Jesus at the beginning of the second century. And as he's being tied to the stake by the Roman authorities and officials, and the fire is being kindled underneath him, the Roman proconsul gave him one final chance to recant his faith and to be set free. To which Polycarp responded, 86 years I have served him, and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? But we can entrust our souls to a faithful creator in our time of suffering, knowing that he will not do us any wrong, knowing that he is working all things out for our ultimate good, even if that means that we leave this life and enter into glory. But if we simply left it there, that might be comforting, but we'd still be prone to look at God and say, that's great, really glad to hear that. You're working all things for my good through this suffering But why do you get to be the one to decide? Why do you get to pull the strings and bring the suffering into my life? Isn't there a better way? Can't you do this differently? And that's when we've got to remember that the God who orchestrates and invites us into suffering is the only God, the only God who has come into this world to suffer himself. He deeply understands suffering. We worship a God who understands suffering more so than we ever will. He's experienced it more intensely than you and I ever will in this life. And the cross is the reminder that God is one who suffers with us. He's not abandoned us. He does care. He's still engaged. Suffering is the way of God. The way to glory is the way of the cross, according to the Bible. First suffering and then joy. First death and then resurrection. And it's important to point out as we close that none of this can happen by yourself. Suffering would crush you if you weren't in community. We tend to read the New Testament letters in a very personal way, which is good. Even maybe inserting our name into the letters. And it doesn't come across in our English translations very well, but when Peter uses the pronoun you in this passage, and most of the time throughout all the New Testament epistles, it's always plural. It's like all y'all. He's talking to people, not person. He's encouraging the community, not individuals necessarily. And there's no way that we could ever endure suffering without one another's help. I mean, suffering is meant to be done together. We need each other as we live in this broken world to remind each other of what's true, to come alongside one another and support one another when days seem dark, to encourage one another with the truth that God is with us in our suffering, making us into something beautiful, giving us certain qualities and characteristics that are going to last into eternity. And our hope and prayer at Trinity Grace is that we would be a community like that a community that follows the God who has suffered for us, that moves into suffering, hopeful that God is bringing about renewal in us and in our city through us, a community that attracts the attention of our friends and our neighbors by the way we suffer.
by the way we love and serve. We want to be a community where God shows up to meet us in profound ways precisely because of our suffering. Knowing that he is a God who has suffered with us and loves us and works all things for our good. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the reminder this morning that you are one who not only talks about suffering, but you are one who has come to experience suffering with us and for us. And we pray this morning that as we consider the suffering that we all experience, that you would encourage us that suffering is not without its purpose, but it's meant to drive us deeper into your love, deeper into who you are, deeper into your care for us. We pray that you would do that by your spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.